Hello and welcome back to the Elmtown Podcast. This is Kevin Yank, your regular host. Before we get started today, I'd like to thank our sponsors. We have, as always, Ellie at ellie-app.com, an amazing tool for experimenting with and sharing snippets of Elm code through your web browser. We use this tool at CultureAmp all the time when, uh, when trading uh, you know, questions about Elm. And, and uh, we used it recently for an engineer who was writing a blog post. He, uh, he was writing a blog post about JSON decoders. I may even throw the link into the show notes. And um, the, the snippets of code that he was writing in his, in his blog post, we realized we could just use Ellie to type check those and, and have the same kind of confidence we had about our example code as we do with our application code. It's a really invaluable tool, especially when you're talking about Elm to other people. I mentioned CultureAmp there, so they are our second sponsor. They're my employer and they're paying for my time as I record this. So thank you, CultureAmp, for giving me the freedom to do that. We are based in Melbourne, Australia, and we build a web app that enables companies to collect, understand, and act on employee feedback. If you would like to work on the problem of making workplaces better places to work and you're anywhere near Melbourne, Australia or have the ability to get here, um, we would love to hear from you. Check us out at cultureamp.com jobs. I also want to thank Joel Claremont, who is a financial supporter of this show through Patreon. Thank you, Joel, as always. And brand new this, this week, I want to highlight Xavier Ho, a past guest on this show. So friend of the show already, but he's just gotten a much better friend because he is stepping up as producer, editing our episodes and making us all sound great. So thank you, Xavier. It's great to have you on board. Our guests today are Anaya Berry and Aussie Hanhinen. Hello, you two. Hello. Welcome to the show. You are both from Futurice, and I, I am not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. No, that's correct. That's at least Great. so far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you two are on the show today because I was browsing YouTube the other week, and YouTube's excellent suggestion algorithm knew that I love conference talks about Elm and it popped up what for me if you'll permit me Anna to say is perhaps the best clickbait title I have seen for a conference talk in a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> I used Elm in production and it cost me my job. Anaya before we get talking about why you are jobless today can you introduce yourself and uh, Aussie will get you to go next. Um, yes, uh, I'm Anaya Berry. I am an American in exile in Finland, currently working for Futurice as primarily my experiences in web development and functional programming. So I've done some open source projects. I'm also the creator of the Heresy programming language, which sounds really impressive, except I think I'm also the only user of the Heresy programming <laughs> language. Yeah, that's pretty much me, I guess. It has 100% user satisfaction, that uh, language. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't even know that I'd go that far. <laughs> and Aussie, I, I recognize your name from your Elm Conf 2016 talk, Beyond Hello World and To-Do Lists. Yours was one of the, the first talks I saw about scaling Elm apps as they grow larger, and uh, I really appreciated it at the time. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I've been at Futures for like five years now. And I've been mostly working on front ends. I do enjoy the getting something visible for the user. So that's why I'm focusing on the front end. 
I love that too. And I bet a lot of our listeners are in the same boat. The last time I, I interviewed for a job, I was asked, so do you like front end? Do you like back end? What, what's your preference? And I said, look, I can do a bit of everything, but for some reason, any code that makes pixels change color, I just have a lot more fun <laughs> writing it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so the two of you are Futurice. What is Futurice? Well, it's a consultancy. We basically go to the client office, work with the client and try to provide them with a solution that's perfect for their particular scenario. And working with the team is the idea that you leave them not only with a working app, but the ability to maintain it themselves? Or maybe this yeah. is a spoiler for later in the show, but do you get called back to maintain the thing later? I mean, it always depends on how much the client themselves have developers and stuff like that. And that's actually something that we're probably going to go over. <laughs> yes, oh, but it's uh, so it sounds like it's a consultancy and your specialty is getting on site and being part of the team. Yeah. Your talk, Anna, which was the inspiration for me inviting you both on today was about a project. And at the time that you gave the talk, I was especially intrigued because you didn't ha have approval to talk about the details. But you and I have been working over the past week to get what approvals we could. And so hopefully we can share with our listeners a bit more details. This is the grand unveiling of, of what you were talking about specifically in that talk. So I'm very excited to get into those details. Yeah. Um, so the project uh, was an internal tool uh, that we called Ferrari. For some reason, quite a lot of our internal tools were used to be named after cars. It was for a company called Sonoma, which is the uh, a media company. They're the parent company of the Helsingin Sanomat and Ilta Sanomat uh, newspapers. And uh, specifically, we worked on their digital content delivery platform for the web. Ferrari specifically is an internal tool, sort of, we call it a lane manager which essentially it's kind of like one part of a content management system where specifically it's just about uh, managing how and where on the website different articles and, and so forth appear, um, as well as offering an interface to some of the configuration options for the website as well. It is written primarily in Elm. The actual front-end UI is entirely in Elm with just a little bit of... Uh, JavaScript for assistance with some drag and drop functionality. And then we have a backend proxy in Scala, but that mostly just serves as sort of a caching proxy between the app and the rest of the main content delivery platform servers. Which as I remember in your talk, you said it was enormous and nearly drove you insane. Yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> It's a very large Scala project uh, with some very clever custom code. It's technically Play Framework, but if you've worked on a Play Framework app, it will not help you here because we've had to make that many custom notifications over time. Yeah, right. But uh, I mean, you know, it works. It works very well. It is honestly uh, one of the better news sites I've used. So it does the job and that's kind of what we're paid for. So the, the lane manager thing, to be clear, is specifically for the web. That's right. Yeah, I believe so. I don't think it affects how anything appears in the print editions. Yeah, that's right. Oh, so funny. When, when you told me that it was two newspaper sites, in my mind, it didn't even occur to me that there was still a print edition for these things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, Helsing in Sanomat is actually the 
biggest newspaper in Finland, both in yeah. print and digital. So in terms of the, the people that are using this, is it reporters, is it, you know, line editors, is it web producers? You know, what's your, what does your typical user look like for this thing? It's a specific person who is doing the kind of job that you're uh, standing by to accept news from journalists and editors and putting a priority on them and then maybe changing the uh, layouts for the main page of the website and editing the news title or the ingress that you see and all of this is going to be done by a Ferrari tool. Right, so new new stories, new content appears in the library and then this is a tool for for publishing it or, or exposing it on the website. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and controlling the layout for that. That's cool. Um, so you talked about the the old tool or the, the the legacy tool had this had a version of this functionality built in and the client needed something suited to their needs. How were they doing this before? I guess I'm the better expert on this subject, but I, I really don't know that much about the old system either. But anyway, if you imagine a generic jQuery based web app that they made for news sites in general. You have like all these different assumptions of what a news site is. It's all basically baked into the system. You don't really get to customize any of it. It's a monolith that just happens to also do that part. Right. Yeah, and my limited experience as well is that it was very much kind of what you picture enterprise software to be like on the interop between our platform and theirs there's a lot of big scary xml files they literally had essentially invented their own character encoding <laughs> or at least their own like system of codes for special characters yes so we had fun trying to interop between that and proper unicode some of that is just, you know, the consequences of it was built as much with print in mind as Unicode and the web. So in a newspaper, there's some amount of importance to all these different kinds of dashes, especially in newspaper style doesn't necessarily use quotation marks for quotes. Um, often they're led with a specific uh, weight of dash and stuff like that. There are distinctions between some of those that don't even exist in the Unicode, so I had a good fun figuring out, okay, so what do they think the number for this character is, and how do <laughs> I translate that? And Yeah, I have another anecdote. They had invented this sort of pseudo-XML style of saying this is a person's name, like this is someone who we can link to, so they just wrote that out into the text box plain text and obviously it led, led to a bunch of bugs because, well, news editors, they have limited experience in coding and there's no syntax highlighting and they're in a rush always. Yep. Yep. So, I think it's important to point out that this is this is how the web <laughs> worked for a long time. I worked I had a former career for 10 years at a technical publisher. We wrote books and articles about web development. If anyone should have been doing this right, it should have been us. But we also made up our own markup language that was yeah. like HTML but much worse. <laughs> so <But> yeah. <laughs> 
I think uh, plenty of developers can be faulted for inventing something like that in their careers. Aussie, you were saying you were more of the expert on how this stuff used to go. So how, tell me, like, what was the timeline here? How did Elm get into the conversation? Was the client looking for a company that could build this in Elm for them? Or were you coming and saying, well, we think Elm is the right thing to build this with? Yeah, you were saying I was talking at the first ElmCon. Yes. So I guess that was right about a year after I started at the Ferrari project. The project started in the middle of summer. Here in Finland, you basically have no one around when it's the summer. Everyone is on vacation at the same time, and that's when we started the project. Uh, <laughs> I had been on uh, bench, which means I was in between projects for about a month prior. Mm -hmm. I had decided that this thing called functional programming seems to be something hip and I should probably try learning it. Yeah. I figured if I try to do it in JavaScript, it's just gonna, basically I'm gonna fall back to for loops when I need to. So I need to get something that's a little bit more confined in mm. a sense. I had seen some of the talks by Evan Chaplicki and decided that Elm could be one of these languages that would actually make me learn the functional style. It might not be as awful <laughs> as I think. And so in that one-month one period, I basically just looked up on the Elm documentation site because there was no guide at the time. All right. So I looked up on the documentation and the example programs that Evan had written. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you build something that moves? That was the first thing that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Then slowly but surely it evolved into Space Invaders kind of game. Well, I was very happy with the experience and I wrote, uh, wrote an article like a blog post about it and that became like, immensely popular. I was totally blown away by it. I was on a high because it was so fun and it was so exhilarating to have all this internet support. <laughs> <laughs> when we started the project, it was me and Hendrik working on it and Hendrik was also a very like a functional programming kind of person. We decided that we were going to use React or a similar technique. Right. <laughs> I mean, at the time, it wasn't like a given that you're going to use React. No, 2015 was still early days for React. Yeah. We decided, the two of us basically, me and Hendrik, we're going to try one of these more eccentric technologies for a while and mm -hmm. see how that goes. Mm -hmm. So we basically make, made a lack of the draw between ClojureScript and Elm because I was a proponent of Elm and he was a proponent of ClojureScript and Elm came out on top of <laughs> on the draw <laughs> and uh, yeah that's how we got started and we decided that we were gonna basically fall back to ClojureScript or re even React. 
Yeah. If it seems like it's more of a hassle. So at this point, when you're when you're tossing up the technology, and you're saying, "Hey, we have fallback plans," is uh, are you working to a deadline? Are you working to a budget? What is the thing that you need to fit your solution inside of in order to know it's going to work? Right. So at the time, Futurist and Sonoma had had a pretty good history already. So we had been. Uh, working together for several years and the team size had gradually grown and we had basically been given more and more responsibility over the digital services that they have. Mm -hmm. And so they had quite a lot of trust in us making the good decisions. Right. That makes a lot more sense. I, I, I guess I was picturing you two walking in on the first day of your contract and being seen to flip a coin in the middle of the office about what technology <laughs> you were going to use. <laughs> yeah. So, so step one, build trust. Step two, flip the coin. Right. Yeah. As I was saying, one of the key things what gave us the possibility to do something like this was that there were no client people around during the summer. Yeah, right. So we knew that we were going to have at least a month of like getting things set up sort of time. Mm -hmm. And we just decided that it was worth the effort to try out these new technologies at that time. Yeah. As fate would have it, we only tried the one technology and it stuck. Yeah, amazing. Our story at Cultramp is similar. Our, our first use of Elm was dubbed an experiment, but we never, after we started the experiment, there was never a point where we had to stop and go, was this experiment a success? It just got better every day further into the experiment we went. Uh -huh. Yeah. So let's talk about Ferrari in a bit more detail. For people who have seen a lot of Elm maps or have seen their own Elm map, is Ferrari special or different from a typical Elm map in any particular way? I haven't seen a lot of large-scale LMAPs. This is pretty much the only one I've worked on. Um, I've done a few small apps myself. I would say that there were some quirks to the way that we built it because it was originally built with, I think, Aussie, was it 0.16? No, it was originally 0.15. Oh, okay. So we were dealing with signals and all that stuff. Yeah. So that so there were still like it had has since been ported to up to point eighteen, um, but there were still little weird things. Whereas there's probably points where the code is wasn't quite idiomatic anymore, and and that sort of thing. Aussie, I remember in your your ElmConf talk, what I learned from your talk was the concept of triplets of breaking out chunks of mini Elm architectures and then wiring them back to the main program in that way, uh, would you say that that was a core architecture feature of Ferrari? Was Is that why you were presenting that pattern at that time? Uh, to be honest, in Ferrari, we were not doing it that way. Okay. It was the second bigger Elm project that I worked on that we built that way. Mm -hmm. And the triplet idea works best for applications that are basically single-page apps that have virtual pages. Yeah, Those one triplet pages, per page. Yeah, so they are very much separate from each other. They 
share very little stakes with each other. And that's totally not the case for Ferrari. In Ferrari, we basically have the state, and mm -hmm. every single piece of the UI is just like a drill down on the same state. Yeah. So what are you looking at in the app? Is it like a semi-WYSIWYG view of the front page of the site or something like that? I mean, yeah, kind of. It's, it's sort of like, uh, it depends on which view because there's multiple views for different, for like the layout editor and the lane editor. But for example, the lane editor, essentially you have this view where you have a list of possible articles on the left and then your main view uh, is, is just a list of the articles in sort of order of appearance in the lane and you can drag and drop around to change the order, drag new articles into the lane, wherever you want them to go, and so forth. Yeah, I was going to say, everything about that sounds super well-suited to Elm, even early Elm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's one state, and you see it all the same time kind of thing. Uh, yeah. But, but, but the drag and drop sounds hard. Yeah, uh, the drag and drop is pretty much entirely handled through ports to JavaScript. So we have a whole, like, I think it's like a thousand lines of JavaScript that mostly just is there for the drag and drop functionality. Because at the time there wasn't any, I don't think at least there was any, like, Elm libraries for doing that. There is now, I've learned with point nineteen for doing drag and drop now, but at the time, yeah. In terms of, like, the architecture, yeah, like Ossie said, you kind of have a big set of nested states. So you have your main model that's for the whole app, and but that's most of that is then like the sort of the entries in that record are then of the type of the state of another subpart of of the model and of the, the the app. What I ran into that maybe wasn't the best sort of organization and was sometimes frustrating was that and I have done this myself when I was first sort of like tinkering with Elm to learn it myself on the side was the model view controller approach of, okay, so we have all our models in one folder over here and we have all our views in one folder over here and we have all our update functions. Maybe they're next to the model or maybe they're also all in their own folders. So now any even portion of the view is, is in three different places in your application and finding things becomes incredibly challenging. Um, so that was like a thing that, uh, when I first started, I'd never worked on Elm and certainly never anything this size. Uh, the first challenge was just finding where things lived. So I, I, it was funny because like, so the first two weeks of trying to work the, my first Ferrari ticket, literally I spent like a week or two, like brushing up on Elm, trying to make sense of the code, reading line after line of code and being like, I just don't understand where everything happens. And then it dawns on me that, oh, I have a type system. <laughs> I have a really good type system. Yeah. And I need to move this thing to this other place. And I still am not tr quite tracing where all some of the like state interactions are happening. So let's just yank it out yeah. and let it break. And then I can just follow all the errors and they're going to tell me exactly where everything lives. Yeah. And, and that, was the, that was the light bulb moment for me with Elm of like, oh, shit. I see where this is helping me now. I always have this fallback of break it and see what happens to be able to trace exactly where things are lining up. Yeah, I that's I I do not 
yet have the functional programming instincts that you have to feel like I can go much faster building something in Elm than in JavaScript. But invariably, I am much happier with the first thing I have built in Elm than the first thing I would build in JavaScript. And I, am w I feel way more well-equipped to make changes to it because uh, making a deliberate mistake is often a productive act. Whereas yeah. uh, making a mistake in JavaScript, you go, oh, oh crap, I need to come up with a different yeah. program. Yeah. yeah, I think that was something that actually in the initial building stage of Ferrari was very important for us. Elm didn't allow us to make these quick and dirty kind of hacks that would get us into the, the state where we want to be, but also make our code base a little bit worse for for the future. Yeah. And especially since we knew that it's going to be something that's going... Well, it's been alive for, I think, three or four years now, and it's still being developed. So I can't even imagine how it would be like if it was all just, you know, early this early days of React <laughs> and yeah. just JavaScript. Yeah. 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 We had all of these tiny little issues with drag and drop one was one of the biggest ones, but there were a bunch of little uh, interaction patterns that we needed to solve that we thought it took a lot of time to solve it in Elm, sort of. But then once we had done that, we felt like, okay, we don't need to touch this anymore. It's done now. Was there a moment of, of doubt when, when you realized that like drag and drop wasn't going to be a slam dunk? It wasn't baked into the language? Because I find like a lot of people have that, that uh, crisis of confidence. The first time that they need to use ports or use something that, that communicates with the outside world from an LMAP. That's a great point. I mean, um, I was talking about the initial one-month period of experimentation and setting up the project. We were deliberately trying to find the hardest things we need to do in order to make that app work. Mm -hmm. And so the first week of my like professional Elm life was building the first version of the drag and drop port system. And since that seemed to work better than expected, we felt like, okay, well, if we can do this in Elm with considerable amount of time, but still it, it works perfectly and it's actually quite pleasant to use um, in the end. So if that's something we can build with no experience in a week, then probably this will work out fine. I think that's a great tip for, because, you know, solve the hardest problem first, then you know everything else is likely to be easier than the thing you just did. Yeah. And and so it all feels like smooth sailing from there. We had a similar thing when we were getting started with Elm at CultureAmp. Uh, like, we tried it. I could see, I could understand what it was and what it was like to use. And immediately I thought, okay, the hardest thing that is 
that we're going to have to deal with here is things that we would normally just use a React library for, uh, mm -hmm. like a, a, a complex widget. And so I looked through our app and I was like, okay, we've got these multi-select drop-down lists. If there's no third-party library, we're going to have to build one of those ourselves. So I am going to spend the weekend seeing just how hard that is. And at the end of the weekend, it was similar to like you said. I, I was like, well, that was not easy. But if everything else is easier than that, uh, I think I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I would think something was going to be hard. And then I would, once I figured out how to do it, like where the entry point into the code base was that this needs to go into, then the actual implementation would be like, well, this just somehow falls. It's sort of like type-driven development. Like once you know what you need to do, and you, uh, you look at the problem, and then suddenly you start building your types for it, everything just sort of falls into place from there, and somehow it all just makes sense. Like one thing leads to another because this function needs this type, and that the, the thing that calls it needs that type, and I always hear so much about how, oh, typed programming is so much harder for newcomers because they get a terrible stack trace in Java or something like that, and mm. that does, that's not very helpful. But if you have a language with a type system that's actually there to help you, like you mm. have in Elm, like you have in Rust, like you have uh, in uh, F-sharp, uh, then suddenly it becomes this amazing little personal assistant that is telling you how, hey, you, you need to use this here, and, oh, well, if I have to use that here, then I'm going to have to use that over there. And yeah. then next thing you know, you've written the thing, and it just works. <laughs> the, uh, we were onboarding a new engineer who was learning Elm uh, the other day, and I was just, the, the pair of the experienced Elm developer and the newbie were, were working together just, just in my earshot. And uh, that exact sequence of events occurred where... Uh, the, the newbie was just following the compiler errors, and then at a certain point, there were no more compiler errors, and he's like, oh, I must have done something wrong. Oh, no, wait, it's working. I wasn't ready for it to be done. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another person who used to work on Ferrari after I had left the project. He's called Daniel, and he went on to another, another client to again, built a big Elm app. He then presented some of it in an Elm meetup here in Helsinki. And one of the things that he mentioned during his talk was that he keeps on repeating the pattern of adding a single message into the message type, then the compiler is going to say that the update case is missing. He's going to add that. And then he's got some functions that are missing, maybe, or some model fields that are missing. And once those are added, it's going to work. And then that, mm. that's the end of that task. <laughs> I usually, because I am one of those people who likes seeing pixels change color, my new features usually start with, I'll go to the view and change the HTML and write some HTML that, that generates a message that I haven't mm -hmm. declared yet. And then I follow the compiler to, to create the message and then the same sequence of events. But it's like, um, I start by creating this view that cannot possibly render until everything is done. 
and then I follow the compiler, and then some hours later, I get to see the view that I wrote way at the beginning, and it's like a a gift I made for myself right at the start. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the sort of circular nature of the Elm architecture basically lets you begin at any point that feels natural to you, Mm. and then the compiler is going to point out the next step you need to take in order to make it work. Yeah. So Ferrari uh, started on Elm 0.15. It's, yeah. I guess it's gone to 16, 17, 18. 19 is now out in the world. What can you tell me about where Ferrari is against um, Elm 19? Well, um, I did take a look at what would what it would take to update it. Um, I think we had a few libraries that were missing still most of which could be replaced um in particular actually some of our build tooling hasn't been updated yet because i had one of my sort of big projects was adopting elm format and elm analyze on the project to sort of bring the code up to more modern standard and neither of those had been updated yet point 19 has been very um controversial (laughs) shall we say uh, some of that controversy, I think, is 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 coming from a much smaller uh, set of users than it appears if you read too much hacker news. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the thing that I did start to run into with Elm, so I mentioned I we adopted Elm Analyze, um, and part of that was okay. Elm Analyze just spit out something on the order of like fifteen hundred style issues. And I want to fix them all, or at least as many of them as I possibly can. Right. Uh, they need they need to not happen anymore. Uh, so I spent a lot of time waiting for the compiler. And what I found was there in 18, there were some issues with the type inference. This was a known bug where certain kinds of like recursive types or at least recursive-ish functions with mm. like the JSON parser could really, 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 really drag the compiler down. So I was getting up to like, Two minute plus compile times. There's a company here in uh, in Australia that uh, built an L map. The all of the JSON decoders are are generated code from types on their back end, and the code generation that they used to do that used some of these patterns that are unhealthy in the 18 compiler or yeah. uh, problematic because it's generated code. Well, they are generating it because there is a lot of it. And uh, so anytime the compiler has to crunch through all that again, it's like a 20-minute build. So yeah. uh, they would be very much looking forward to their Elm 19 upgrade. Yeah, whereas I definitely have imme- immediately noticed, you know, like I got to the inevitable compiler error a lot faster trying to rebuild Ferrari in point .19 than I would have gotten before. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, so yeah, I think the compiler speed is amazing. The new build uh, is, uh, sizes are amazing. So I'm a big fan of Glitch, which is this sort of like online IDE, I guess you could call it. Basically, the idea is you make this make a project in Glitch and it just automatically, it's hosted on its own container, public to the world. It just uh, takes whatever server is spitting out a signal on port 3000, runs mm. npm start, npm install, npm start, and then hosts it. Um, so you get like a full hosted web server instantly. 
for the moment, mostly they support it. Support that it was built for JavaScript, and I was like, well, but that. I mean, I I do a little JavaScript. I've done some JavaScript, but I'd rather program in something more functional. So I've made it sort of my personal mission, getting as many programming languages working on it as I can. You do have a full Linux container in there with quite a lot of stuff pre-installed. So I started playing around with different, especially comp- to compile JS, compile to JavaScript languages. Mm. And of the ones that I've tried, Elm, especially, even on at point 18, but now especially on point 19, is so much faster. Using Elm on Glitch is almost transparent compared wow. to um, Fable uh, I tried, which is the F-sharp to JavaScript compiler, uh, PureScript. Um, I've tried BuckleScript, um, a bunch of other things, and all of them were way slower. So the thing of it is, is... When the container wakes up, then it has to run, install, and start, potentially, or at least the start, and that means recompiling your app every time. That's Mm -hmm. also how the live reload works. So every time you change something, it just automatically restarts the server and runs your NPM start over again. So the startup time on the Elm was just way faster. Like, everything else I've tried with it works, but it's not exactly fast enough to be pleasant, whereas Elm... I can barely tell the speed difference between if I was just using JavaScript, um, which is pretty impressive. I'm going to have to try that out. The L19 upgrade, you you talked about how it's somewhat controversial. And I think for the past couple of years, we've been wondering, hey, so when's the next release of Elm coming out? You know, that's that's what everyone was asking. And we'd be told to be patient and we'd be patient. And then then we'd ask again, no, no, really, is it is it coming? And uh, I really liked the philosophy that was put forward was that Elm is still this language that they're figuring out what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And when a language is in that stage of life, changes are painful. Upgrades mm-hmm. are painful. When, you, when, when the language changes and the entire ecosystem has to adapt to that change, uh, there's a big bump in the road. And Evan deliberately does not did not want that to be happening to Elm developers every month or every couple of months. So um, he saved it up into a batch and gave it gave us two years of bumps in the road to us all at once in Elm 19. And yeah. we are feeling those bumps at the moment. At Cultramp, we've been working for, uh, probably, we've had a team with one to one and a half engineers working on our Elm upgrade solidly for two, three weeks now. And um, we don't have an enormous code base. We don't have a small code base either. We're, we're probably a third the size of, uh, of No Red Ink, uh, 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 according to the last numbers I heard from them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it, it ha- that team has been pushing down the, the road of L19. And it's, it's funny, the things that are taking time and effort and making it go slow are the same things that you feel when you are building an Elm app and Elm is saying, no, that would be a mess, so I'm not going to let you do that. (laughs) But there were still some messes that Elm let you make before, and Elm 19 has cleaned up a bunch of those, and we are all having to go, okay, yeah, I did take a shortcut there. I probably shouldn't be debug crashing when my JSON decoder fails, and now I'm not allowed to do that anymore, so we have to come up with a new way of handling JSON decoder failures. Yeah. Uh, so on a bunch of little fronts, where where the Elm nineteen is going, yeah, that is no longer acceptable, and you're going to thank me for it when you've cleaned it up. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, like, the, the big example that I think the infamous blog post made a huge deal about was the native modules thing. And I found the whole debate sort of weird because, well, I didn't even know native modules were a thing. Because, of course, they, would, they were never documented and you weren't supposed to use them. Um, I am happy to say with a certain <laughs> amount of smugness that uh, and we probably only got there by chance but Cultramp also never never used a native module not even once i think there was one like dictionary for non uh, comparable keys uh, mm -hmm. library that we were using that uh, relied on a native module but uh, that was easy enough to replace with a version that doesn't and uh, yeah, we, we got lucky too. I mean, I could, I could very easily imagine a scenario in which we kind of looked at a thing and went, I know we're not supposed to use native modules, but that seems like the most pragmatic choice right now. So we're going to do it and then probably yeah. pay for it later. And yeah, we would be in the same position of, oh, I wish we weren't paying for this now. I mean, yeah, Ferrari does everything through ports like you're supposed to. Um, the only thing that I've run into where so far where native modules might have been helpful was I was thinking brainstorming a little like toy app just for something to do the other day and I wanted to see about using Google Maps and mm. there is a Google Maps library for point 18 but it is built with native modules so of course that's not going to work anymore mm. um, which is why it hasn't been upgraded yet. But then I wound up finding, oh, but also there's this other maps module. It uses, I think, like OpenStreetMap or some other map data. And that's totally, like, supported and, like, has is being upgraded to point nineteen. doesn't use native anything. So yeah. it's like, I, I, I feel like the thing with native modules is that a lot of the stuff that I have seen that is use cases of native modules, it wasn't so much that Elm couldn't have done that thing. It was that, yeah, like you said, there was a thing that already existed in pure JavaScript land, and it would just save us a lot of time if we could just bind this and pretend it's, it's safe and go yeah. about our business, which exactly like you say, that's probably going to bite you in the ass eventually. I like the advice that the new advice that web components are probably something that are more ready for you to use than you think they are. And mm. they solve this really well for, for bits of JavaScript that you want deep down inside your LMAP rather than next to your LMAP. They can yeah. really solve that problem well. And uh, I, I like that there, you know, there was Luke's talk at Elm Europe uh, showing how to do that a couple of months before we got Elm 19 so that you know people who are following the 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 language in the area were, would probably go oh yeah this is a mess but I saw a tool for that recently mm -hmm. yeah you know I used to do stuff in polymer oh yeah I got into Elm so at the first Elm conf I was talking with Richard Feldman at a coffee shop. He was talking to me about the difficulties of implementing something like Google Maps inside Elm. And then I was like, well, I made this little demo of making a custom element and then you can basically have any kind of DOM structure and any kind of JavaScript within and then just talk to it through the normal DOM APIs and 
he was like, hmm, I should probably try that out. And <laughs> then a couple of months later, he was at the Reactive Conf, maybe, in yeah. Bratislava. I do remember that talk, and um, yeah, it was great. Uh, I think I remember teasing uh, them both that Luke's, uh, Luke's Elm Europe talk had obsoleted um, Richard Feldman's previous authoritative talk about web performance <laughs> yeah. in Elm. Yeah, and I, well, I don't know, but I think I might have planted the seed of that thought <laughs> into Richard's mind. I'll let you take credit for that, Aussie. I don't it's know if it's a true awesome. story, but here in Elmtown, that stands up. Yeah. It's kind of funny, actually. Uh, Richard Feldman is the one who wrote that uh, Elm Google Maps library that I was just mm. talking about, too. Right, right. Uh, so he, his hands are not clean. He has tried the messy version. Yeah, he's tried and he has tried everything, Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed this talk. I feel like I, I need to let you both get back to your work days, but as I understand it, you are both now unemployed. Is that right, Anna? Well, I at least am not on a project anymore. Uh, I had a couple going and I was, as I mentioned, trying to pitch them on a point nineteen upgrade, but it looks like that's not going to happen just yet. Um, yeah, uh, we mentioned that uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the title of my talk was I used Elman production and it cost me my job. Yeah, I was teasing, but are you telling me it's literally true? I mean, in a sense, it is kind of true. So I could have stayed on the project, but I would have been mostly working on Scala stuff. The problem was is I would get a ticket in Elm, and after my initial learning curve was over, I would bang the whole thing out in like maybe a few days, and then I would have nothing to do again. And the problem was is that the app was so stable that almost nothing ever comes up either. Like we rarely ever got, the whole time I was working there, I think there were only ever two support, like immediate, like this needs to be fixed now, support requests on the LMAP. And they were actually a bug with uh, the interop with the, the Scala backend. Mm. <laughs> so you have this app that's so stable, it never has bugs, it never crashes. So it's just like once it's done, I well, what am I here for? Uh, uh, <laughs> there's no reason. There was no reason to keep me around just to maintain the Ferrari code, uh, and I didn't want to keep doing Scala, so I moved on to other projects. Oh well, I I have thoroughly enjoyed this chat, and I'm I'm so happy that we got to hear about uh, Ferrari and and get some previously unreleased details. I feel like uh, we've gotten a bit of a scoop here in Elmtown. Thank you both for for your time. Yeah, yeah thank you.